The great challenge of the left is how to reconstruct state apparatus, not in this shitty populist way they will all the time be in contact with social movements and so on, but as an invisible, well-functioning machine, relatively as far as possible, non-corrupted, and so on. Because, uh, you know, usually people designate Stalinism as bureaucratic socialism. I think it's exactly if we use the term bureaucracy in its noble Max Weber sense. The problem of Stalinism was precisely that it politicized the state so much that it never was ready and able to construct a neutral, well-functioning bureaucracy. It always needed, in order to thrive, purges an emergency state, uh, and so on and so on. And I even got caught into this argument once with anarchist groups, friends. They claim we, we hate states, we want small communities where in a self-transparent way we organize our lives, we run our lives. I told them on two counts I'm opposed to you, even on three counts. First, but are you aware that, I told them I love things when they really function like that, but are you aware that in order for this to function, you need a good, efficient state to, to, to organize the complex background. Like, okay, you organize distribution of electricity. Fuck you, where does electricity come from? It has to be rendered available. Education, healthcare, and so on and so on. So again, the second point, I even doubt to provoke you a little bit about this uh, local democracy this non, even my good friend Alain Badiou, I think, goes too much into this, that our ultimate goal should be not representative state, but living local democracy where people are immediately present, self-organizing, and so on and so on. Now I will give you a very brutal argument, but it was made once by Trotsky in a very intelligent way. Uh, namely, to be brutal. Would you really like to live in such a shitty local democracy situation? Every afternoon, you have to go to some stupid meeting, how we organize the education of children, how we distribute water, how we do this, that. No, sorry. I want to live in a nicely alienated state. By nicely alienated, I mean it's invisible there, out of your control, but it delivers, it functions. Water is here. I don't want to debate. Uh, every afternoon where water comes from and how. I want water to be here. I want healthcare to be here. I want energy to be here. I want ecological. I don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about, to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like, uh, uh, did you recycle that paper? Did you throw all the newspapers aside? This is to make us feel good and to, this is a genius of ideology in action. They translate a social problem, how we will restructure, how to restructure our economy and so on, into personal responsibility. This is ideology at its purest, when you criticize a big company and then an idiot comes and tells you, yeah, it's easy to criticize, but what did you do? Did you put all Coke cans aside? Did you do this, that? And if you do it, it's what? It's simply 
The main function is to make you feel good. You see? You see? I did my duty towards Mother Earth. I carefully put all the cans of Coke here, all that I put there and so on. That's the main function of it. It's ideology at its purest. It's the same, I claim, uh, even with, uh, unfortunately, uh, this is, I even, I think, presented this line, but you were not here two, three times ago here in this very room. How it's the same with charity or with, with all of them. Look, if there is an entity which is ideology at its purest today, I'm sorry if some of you know this line, this is my favorite example, but now they are no longer playing this game, this card so strongly as they did years ago, Starbucks. I'm not a terrorist, but if I were to be a terrorist, I would say bomb Starbucks. <laughs> you know why? No, it's not coffee is bad or whatever. I don't care about that, but I don't know how it is now. But I remember five, ten years ago, whenever you enter a Starbucks restaurant, you have big posters. We are ecologically conscious. Two cents of every cup of tea goes to some stupid Guatemala children, uh, 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 Somali orphans, to save this, to save that. This is the most ingenious uh, ideological move that I can imagine. What's this operation? Usually, we are divided between being consumerists and then, oh, but we should take care that we are not just consumerists. We should also take care of Mother Earth, of society. Starbucks is offering you a wonderful solution, which is we will include into the price of your consumerism, commodity, also your social duty. So pay 20 cents more for cappuccino, and you did also, at the same time as being a consumerist, you did your duty towards uh, society, and so on, and so on. So, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, I claim that, again, this is the big problem today. We don't need local democracy. Of course, when it functions, it's nice. But isn't it that all the big challenges that we have today are challenges which need even more than state power. We will have to organize ourselves even at a transnational level. Look, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, uh, the catastrophic theorist, you should get him here, incidentally. He is so intelligent. Uh, uh, he told me that as a member of some fucking European uh, committee, he was in Fukushima two days after. Uh, the uh, earthquake, tsunami, all that. And he told me that for one day, a little bit less, Japanese government was in a total panic because they thought that the pollution will be so strong that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people. If this were to happen, can you imagine where will they put them? The rational solution would have been, of course, to ask Russia to give part of eastern Siberia if I'm brutally rational, that would have been the only solution. But how can you do it? No mechanisms to do it or what? You see, we have to confront these problems. And I'm sick and tired of this local... No, we need larger global organisms. I mean, this is what... I'm now repeating myself what I already said in my class. This is the big task of the left today. Not every idiot can do this. Uh, 
ecstatic things. Oh, we all cried solidarity. One million people on Geza Square, on Tahrir Square, on Syntagma Square. We were all with them crying together. Fuck you, I don't care. What I care is the morning after. When the ecstatic energy is over and things return to normal, how will ordinary people feel the difference? This is the only thing that interests me. So now, if the picture is so bleak, if we don't know what to do, you are quite right to ask, so fuck it. Why don't we call it a day and claim, okay, radical change doesn't work, let's become reasonable pragmatics within the mechanisms that we have. Basically, we should be just, I use this term with great irony, left-wing Fukuyamaists, you know. We accept Fukuyama general diagnosis, liberal democratic capitalism is the ultimate forum, and we just have to, like, give it a little bit more of a leftist spin, like, if I may be a little bit evil, like Justin Trudeau, no, should be in Canada, should be our image, you know. <laughs> the problem is, we may diverge here, but the problem is that I don't think this works for a simple reason, and that's the only serious question today. We are confronting a series of problems. Can liberal democratic capitalism deal with them? In the long term, I don't think it can. And that's why I remain nominally, don't be afraid, not in any Stalinist sense, a communist, communist. Because I think that the problems we are dealing today are problems of what Marx called commons. What should be our common shared inheritance, what shouldn't be left neither to the market nor to the state power. And there are a series of these commons. For example, the commons of culture in the broadest sense, the immaterial capital, cognitive capital, uh, means of communication, and so on. It's clear that incredibly important things are happening here. That's where WikiLeaks enter. Uh, on the one hand, we know that cyberspace is an incredible opportunity for people's direct uh, self-organization and so on. On the other hand, uh, cyberspace offers unbelievable new forms of control and so on. For example, Assange, con okay, another of my friends, if I both, both, Assange convinced me that Google is a private version of NSA. You know how they Google, even he told me, no, even he didn't, I read about this. If some of you use Kindle to read books, are you aware what happens there? Not only do they know, Amazon, which book you bought, but the Kindle machine sends all the data. How much of the book, which pages did you read? How much time did you take it? Did you read the old book? They get a complete profile on you. Uh, the same goes for medicine. So uh, what I'm saying is that on the one hand, we get here uh, uh, unheard of abilities of control. On the other hand, I believe quite naively what some thinkers like the latest one is Paul Mason's now bestseller, The End of Capitalism. But they, are, they are too naive, but their basic message is right that 
so-called uh, that uh, uh, that the so-called intellectual property is the greatest threat to capitalism today. It simply cannot. It's more and more difficult to contain it into the form of private property. Look at how we are all. I am at least totally corrupted. My two almost most visited websites are Kikes and Pirate Bay, of course, you know. We download it. Who even, I mean, I don't know how it is here. Maybe in Switzerland here you are still a little bit retarded. But in all of Manhattan, you no longer get not even one DVD store serious now. It's all disappearing. This copying of data, like what copyright? I know, for example, all my friends know it. There is, among others, some in Russia, some website where they follow precisely our work, philosophy, humanities, and so on, and you get literally everything a week or two, the latest, after appearance, you can download it for free, and so on, and so on. So something is uh, also, uh, it's uh, also so many other things of shared knowledge, and so on, and so on, which, again, this is, I think, maybe one of the key struggles today, the common intellectual commons. Then we have, of course, the commons of external nature, uh, pollution, uh, exploitation of nature, and so on, and so on. Why commons? Because, of course, nature is our shared commons, and we have to take care of it in this way. Then we have the commons of internal nature, our genetic inheritance, the topic of biogenetics. It's better maybe for you not to know what is already going on there. I'm not a paranoiac, but it's quite incredible. This, you know that uh, the vision, and not a distant vision, it's still very primitive, but it is already happening, is the direct uh, link between computer and our brain. So you no longer need even, you know, Stephen Hawking, till recently he used one finger that he was ready to move a little bit to press the button. No, now you can directly communicate with the, like, uh, they, I saw it in London, my God. The model, it's still very primitive, but it already works, of a wheelchair for crippled people, sorry, politically correct, is to say for movement-challenged people, or how? Whatever, uh, and that you don't need anything. Your brain is not even wired. It's just scanned with some, you have a special helmet. You think forward, the chair moves forward. You think left, your wheelchair moves left, and so on and so on. So, okay, this is wonderful, divine almost. We are like gods. You think it happens. Yeah, but if it goes out, it goes in. They can also control you. And it's incredible to what extent all this is already developed. For example, you know, when they make these plans, scientific, they always try to sell them to you by claiming, we will help uh, invalids, crippled people, and so on. But then it always goes. For example, the latest trend in some top advanced companies in psychiatry is you already have scanning machines which measure precisely the state of your mind, are you in depression, not, and so on, and so on. But to such an incredible extent already, 
that it's not just a general good feeling, but they can specify it. Is it rage? Is it depression, tiredness? So they can get a complete image, and they now even propose, which is nice in a way, to then directly connect this to some capsule with medicine so that when you feel bad, a certain serum medicine is put into your blood. When you feel, you know, you don't even have to think about it. The machine does everything. Now, I'm not uh, anti-technological. It's wonderful. But again, how will this develop? Who will control this? And, uh, of course, uh, the last big problem that I see, the commons of humanity itself. Did you notice how the other side of global market is new walls are arising all around? And if you don't believe me, look at Hollywood big blockbusters. They know it. You know, all those movies like Elysium, Hunger Games, they had the right suspicion that if we don't change things, we are gradually approaching a kind of a new apartheid society where basically there will be, and there already are, those who are in and those who are out. Even a conservative thinker, but we are friends. I kind of like him. He's an intelligent conservative. Peter Sloterdijk. In his new book on capitalism, uh, global capitalism, he had an ingenious idea to claim that the term globe should not be just used in the sense of global, all encompassing, but also globe in the sense of a cupola, a globe, so that there are those who are covered by it and there are those who are out like 20% of people of world humanity, we are in, others are out. And this, I think, uh, I prefer even not, and I think that problems that we have now, problems of, uh, sorry, I don't know, oh my God, I hate myself, time is running so much, because I'm already at the beginning, you know, I covered what I thought. <laughs> no, uh, and uh, I think, uh, it's clearly that the problem of refugees is to be located at this level. It's simply those outside the globe trying to penetrate inside the globe. Uh, uh, and here I wanted to go, okay, let me briefly, if I may be a little bit longer, if I go a little bit longer, let me go into this. Uh, here I think, Precisely apropos the refugee problem. Now, what I will be telling you is extremely problematic. Because just if you have time to do such stupid things, just go on the web and put my name and racism, fascism. And you will see all the characterizations of me as a racist, fascist, and so on. Uh, of course, I'm totally for more refugees in Europe. I'm not what people claim. I just want to focus on certain problems which are Real. What problems? Uh, uh, okay, we have this Sloterdijk situation. Coupol outside, inside, and so on. Uh, uh, on the one hand, I always emphasize this. I will use a metaphor which I already used in my class. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, Jacques Lacan has a wonderful saying somewhere, my psychoanalytic teacher. If there is a jealous husband who is obsessed that his wife is cheating on him, and even if all his suspicions are true, his wife is sleeping around like crazy, uh, his jealousy is still pathological. 
Because what makes it pathological, his jealousy, is not that it's not true, but the function of jealousy. Pathological jealousy means you, ne you need jealousy to sustain your self-identity. Okay, we can go on into how uh, uh, anti-Semitism works in, the, in a similar way. And I think it's something similar going on with uh, this uh, right-wing, anti-populist, anti-immigrant faith today. Our answer should not be the idealization. Here, problems with me and some liberal leftists begin. My point is that we should not... We should not uh, uh, claim that, no, refugees are good people. Incidentally, when people try to prove this, what they do is they always quote those upper-class Syrian refugees, no, but they are uh, educated and so on and so on. I know, but I know more. I know that that's why Syrian refugees, I know examples from Germany, from England, even from Slovenia, where they just passed through. They know this, and in a wonderful, subtle way, they use this as a class distinction, right? They like to contact us, your old Europeans, and claim, you see, we are not the same as those, as those primitive fundamentalists. We are like you already, you know. Okay, but what I'm saying is that our defense should not be, no, refugees are ideal, blah, blah, blah. No, we should say, even if some things of what you claim about refugees, there are fundamentalists among them with different attitudes towards women, if it's true, it has nothing to do with your fear of refugees. Your fear of refugees is pathologically, its source is a different one, it's uncertainty of Europe itself, losing its welfare and so on, all that. So I claim that here I'm absolutely beyond doubt that uh, the true threat to Europe are not refugees, even in, if 10 million Islamists enter Europe. The true threat to Europe are defenders of Europe today, those nationalist uh, anti-immigrant defenders. If they come to power, Farage in England, ah, Farage, you know, UKIP boss, another boasting. I met him, I know him. And if you are a secret right-finger looking for a new dictator, I must disappoint you, he is not the guy. He is an ex-talk show host, a cheap demagogue. If you are looking for new Führer, sorry, you will not get it in Farage, you know. But if people like Farage in England, uh, Marine Le Pen in France, and so on, if they take over, that will be the end of Europe, the real end of Europe. But what I want to say this is that, on the one hand, we have to be here ruthless. There is a logic, there is this basic model of uh, refugees are a threat to us. This is the same as what Lacan says about jealousy. The true question is why this fear of ours, which cannot be grounded simply in facts, but it tells a lot about the crisis of our European identity today. So that's the first point. The second point, I find it catastrophic to, now comes the more problematic point, to deal, of course there are problems with refugees. My God, what do you expect? 
hundreds of thousands, even millions of people from different cultures come and there would be no problems. But it's absolutely crucial to deal this with these problems openly in a frank debate. If we don't do this, the price will be paid by refugees themselves. And uh, uh, violence against them will be exploding and so on and so on. Because, uh, again, uh, of course there is a problem with refugees. And I think, so I think, what would I have done? Okay, you ask me. I think in an, one should not be afraid of this, an absolutely open debate. There, they are here, they have their own. I know, now just don't tell me please, but I'm uh, essentializing them. They, there is not one refugee group, they are different. Okay, okay, you can always say this. This is bullshit. Also, remember, when you will criticize Nazism, I will then also say, but you are essentializing Nazism. They are not all the same. There are Bavarian Nazis, there are Prussian Nazis. What I'm saying is, of course, they are different. But with some of them coming from a different culture, of course, there are problems. And I think the only way to do it is Simply here, I am a Habermasian, an absolutely open debate. Like, was this done in Germany or not? What I would have done after those Kellen, you remember, New Year's Kellen train station, those harassing women disorder. What I would have done is invite on TV ordinary German people, representatives of immigrants, representatives of Muslim society and of Muslims, and openly engaged in a debate. That's the, and then establish clear rules. Do not be afraid of it. Like what, something along these lines. There is an, a difference between our culture, our culture, kind of a general vague agreement. Is that, and this is even, I admit it openly, a Eurocentric feature, which is that in our societies, we put a much larger accent on individual freedom and independence. We put less accent on collective solidarity, fidelity to your community, and so on and so on. So what to do here? I will give you an example. I saw a report on German TV on ZDF, Zweitdeutsches, the second chain, which, as you, I hope, know, is more social democratic, leftist one. So I was not listening to any of my neo-Nazi friends, which I don't care, and so on. The report was that over 2,000 girls per year in Germany escape from German, from Muslim families because they feel oppressed by, for example, a girl gets a German Boyfriend, parents don't agree, and so on. So the way Germany does is in a discreet way, they already have over 20 asylum homes, and it's really like in criminal cases protecting witnesses, you know. They give them another identity, and so on, and so on. But then, in a justified way, the Muslim communities protest that this is not tolerance, that they they, the German state, are destroying their way of life. They claim 
the authority of family over young girls is an essential part of our way of life. So, fuck it, there is no easy multicultural way here. You have to decide. I'm sorry if some of you know this story. It happened in my country years ago. It's the same problem. Uh, Roma, gypsy, to be a racist. Roma girl escaped from her family in Slovenia when her father wanted to marry her when she was 12 years old with an... doesn't matter. She escaped to police complaint. And then, of course, all feminists, the same feminists who otherwise are for multicultural terms, anti, uh, uh, anti-Eurocentrism and so on, protected her. But then some big figures in the Roma community said, but do you know that this arranged marriages is a very central constituent of our communal identity. You take this from us in two generations, all that will remain of us is gypsy food, bands playing, but as a community we are over. So I think the first thing is to fully recognize the problem. There is a problem here. So what I would have done, I wonder if you agree, would be simply to set some basic rules. For example, immigrants would have to accept, of course, the rules, the same rules should uh, help even more for us Europeans. I take this automatically. That, for example, in the case of a conflict between individual and the rights of his, her community, it's our part of our way of life to protect the individual. We have to decide here. Do we? And we have simply to decide on these rules. Then there is another problem. It's not a marginal one. I know of examples in southern Sweden, in Denmark, in, in Netherlands, and in Berlin, in Germany, where some radicalized Muslims, not all a minority, but nonetheless a considerable minority, uh, cannot tolerate public display of homosexuality and attack gay parades and so on. We, uh, so you see what's my solution here. The, the strategy of left liberals, leftists, till now in Europe was, if we talk openly about this, it serves the enemy. Let's keep it covered. I claim it's a catastrophe. We have to risk an open debate. The other thing we have to abandon is this eternal Europe enjoys this, this feeling guilty. Whatever happens, we are guilty. It's a consequence of colonialism or whatever. Of course we are terribly guilty. There would have been no refugees without economic neocolonialism of Europe, without stupid military interventions there, and so on and so on. Without occupation of Iraq, no ISIS. Without the most stupid intervention in Libya, no ISIS there, no chaos in Libya. But at the same time, you know, don't patronize Muslims and all others. They are not just passive victims. They are agents with a certain vision different visions. You know, if you just play this game, victims, victims, my God, in this way you can justify Hitler. You can say, which is in a way true, Hitler was a reaction to the unjust peace of Versailles, where in an unfair way, and this is not, I'm not a Nazi if I say this, Communist Party in Germany was all the time saying this 
through the 20s and so on. That the way in Versailles peace Germany was treated was unjust. Okay, but does this mean that we don't fight Hitler? Does this mean that we say, sorry, we are responsible for it and so on and so on? That's one line of thought. Precisely, you know, it's easy to talk about friendship among civilizations, but civilizations are something so fundamental. It means a way of life. Civilization is not theoretical premises. Civilization is how women and men treat each other, rules of politeness, rules of respect, and so on. It's terribly difficult to change this. And we have to address this, all these issues uh, openly. That would be by the second thing that I don't agree with typical liberal multiculturalism is this idea of communication, you know. We have to understand them. We have to open our heart to them. The moment we understand them, we will see that they are not so horrible. Of course, I agree with this at some level. But I would say, uh, okay, I'll put it like this, repeating an old joke. If ever, if I were to choose one statement, which is, I, I'm ready to argue, the most stupid wisdom that I ever heard, it would have been the wisdom often uh, proclaimed by multiculturalists, the enemy is someone whom, to whom we were not ready to listen to. You know, like, instead of trying to understand you, I just fetishize you as the terrifying other. Now, whenever I hear this, my first reaction is, oh, that's good to know. So Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to understand him and so on. No, fuck you. There are real enemies. And the more, and for example, the wisdom of Winston Churchill was that he was listening to Hitler from the very beginning. And he knew it immediately that Hitler is even more dangerous than Soviet Union, than, St than Stalin. And as a great conservative, he saw it. Sorry, I hate communism, but at this point, we have to unite with Russia against uh, uh, Hitler and so on. So that's my problem. Here again, I agree with my right-wing friend, Peter Sloterdijk, but in totally open, authentically multicultural way. Why this superego pressure, I must understand you? Fuck you, I don't understand myself. Do you think that you understand yourself? I mean, uh, cultures are totally confused, usually inconsistent, caught into their own myths. The first prejudice that I want to uh, uh, reject here problematize is the idea that people may be doing horrible things, but if you listen to their side of the story, you will learn to see it differently. Maybe. But my claim is that the truth, again, an old X-Files follower, the truth is out there, not in your insight. Whenever I recently read a wonderful book, I forgot the author, on uh, Nazi ethics, the title is on purpose provocative. Uh, the woman, a lady, is interested in this simple fact. Nazis were doing horrible things. What stories were they telling to themselves to justify or to make it tolerable for them to do what they were doing? So I don't believe in inner experience. You take the worst 
ethnic cleansers. If you listen to them, you will always discover that they have a wonderful side to them, inner story that they tell about. It's not a problem, this. I had some friends in Serbia, Bosnian Serbs. They have wonderful poetry, national poetry, to, and all others in ex-Yugoslavia. But so what I'm saying is that uh, for me, your innermost self-experience is for me, here I am a psychoanalyst, the fundamental lie. We construct narratives ourselves, basically, to cover up, to justify, to render us blind for the horrors that we are doing in reality. So for me, it's not that the truth of what you are doing is inside you, what you meant by it. I don't care what you meant by it. What you meant by it, your inner story, is the lie you compose to cover what you are doing. This is for me the greatest legacy of three big religions of the book, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Uh, uh, Levinas, with whom, in contrast to you, I'm not ready to sell my mother into slavery for him. But he had one nice point, where he says that this Jewish iconoclasm is not to be read, you know, don't paint God, blah, blah. It's not to be read in a Gnostic way. It doesn't mean God is so much beyond there that it's beyond representation. No. His point is God is not there in the innermost of your experience. God is in how we treat each other here. That's why you shouldn't build images, images of him and so on. And in Islam you have the same. When in Quran, sorry to mention it, you must, some of you must know this better than me, how doesn't uh, Mohammed even say somewhere, if you believe it or not, I don't mess with that. That's your inner decision. What interests me is that you respect certain rules and so on and so on. That's the basic point of these three big books. Let's leave to, sorry if this will sound racist, I don't mean it. Let's leave to Orientals all that bullshit about, you know, your inner experience. It's a nice thing, but it doesn't prevent catastrophes. When I was the last time here, maybe you remember, two, three years ago, I gave a talk on Buddhism. And I had a nice Zen Buddhism debate with some, but I still insist on my basic insight. Yes, Buddhist meditation is a wonderful, radical thing. What I was claiming is only that it has no clear ethical implications. No wonder that the worst crimes, Japanese in China and so on, were fully, not only tolerated, but justified by Zen Buddhism and so on. Uh, so uh, there is authentic inner experience is no guarantee for you not doing horrors outside. So what I want to conclude with is maybe some kind of a praising hypocrisy and external manners. You know how I would like to live in a, what in New York they call condominiums, these big uh, apartment blocks, no? And I like the term because when I first heard the term years ago, I thought, oh, do you get free condoms there or what? Okay. <laughs> my Balkan perversion, sorry. But, uh, and my idea is this one. Your neighbor is a Palestinian, another neighbor is a Jew, a black guy there, a Latino American there, a Chinese there. And we don't spend all the time debating and trying to understand each other. 
we politely ignore each other, and then, of course, it's wonderful when it happens. This is true miracle. All of a sudden, you establish a contact. But it should be left to be a miracle. We will never understand everyone. I'm always suspicious for this universal formula, even if they are Christian, love everyone, and so on. This everyone usually always implies everyone except. Here, although I have a certain half-admiration for him, I remember Khomeini. In, he said when the war was still on, uh, in spite of all death penalties, he met a Western journalist and he claimed Iranian revolution is the most human one. We didn't kill not even one human being. Then the journalist was a little bit shocked, you know, like, but you did kill those, those, those. You know, it was Khomeini's answer. Oh, they are simple dogs. They are not human at all. You know, like, whenever you speak about universal love, just ask who is excluded as, as not even human. So what I'm saying is that precisely in today's global universe, where different cultures are in a way that they were not prepared for thrown today, sorry, thrown together, before this bullshit of we should love each other, know each other, no, sorry, love for me is a very exclusive thing. Love is not I love you all. You know who said I love you all? historical moment. I would like to show you this too late now. You remember when East Germany was falling apart? Erich Milke, the hard guy, the minister of, uh, boss of Stasi, was already attacked. Things were disintegrating in the East German parliament and shocked he came up. This is historical. Look at it. You find it everywhere in YouTube. He said in despair, Abrich liebe euch alle, Abrich liebe, but I love you all. That's an appropriate statement for the chief of secret police. He loves you all. That's why he liquidates all those who disturb this love and so on. No, <laughs> I mean, the true authentic statement is, no, I don't love you all. I'm indifferent towards almost all of you, all of you, but I still respect you. You know, it's easy to be nice to you if I love you. And it's the same with immigrants. I hate this racist secretly attitude, but they are nice, kind people. So what are you telling me? That if they are not nice and kind, that we can screw them, throw them out, you know? Here I am, part of Western legacy, love your neighbor as yourself. But as all good, uh, uh, again, Levinas, I have problems with him, I warn you, and when people embodied in me will take power, you will have to write in prison in Gulag. Long confessions, how was I seduced by Levinas? But he did say another nice thing. He said that the way, it's a wonderful thought. He was well aware, Levinas, of what Lacan is already saying, that neighbor in Jewish tradition and then Christianity is not a fellow man. It's not, oh, he's like me. No. You encounter a neighbor when What's typical encounter of a neighbor? Let's say I know you, we become friends. We are just fellow men, we know each other. But then all of a sudden, years afterwards, I do something, something good, usually it's more something bad, I don't know, I kick a child, I 
I, I laughed, sadistic. Then he said, my God, but did I know this guy at all? How can he do? At that moment, I become a neighbor. Lacan also developed that neighbor is the other in the abyss of its otherness where you never know what it is. And as Levinas interprets then in a wonderful way, I simplify, but that's one of his lines, the Jewish commandments, don't steal, don't that, precisely as a way to keep the neighbor at a proper distance. It's a wonderful reading, I claim. So again, uh, I think this is the only ethics for today. You know, again, uh, the worst thing we can do for refugees is to idealize them in this way. No, many of them are desperate people. You know, the true love of the neighbor is that you help him even if you don't love him. I wonder if you would agree, but for me, love is something very exclusive. Love is uh, an, an, an a libidinal and almost cosmic catastrophe. I am not in love. I wander around, I take a drink with friends, maybe here and there a one-night stand. I was never doing it, but let's pretend it, and so on. And then I fall in love. Can you imagine what a catastrophe this is? All my life is totally thrown out of balance. That stupid woman or man or, or once uh, uh, people annoyed me, but when you say woman, you are, you know, bi binary, heterosexual. Then I went on and Judith Butler was so mad at me because I, I, said, oh, I said, okay, I will do it in a politically correct way. Then another being, woman, man, transgender woman, a dog, why not a dog? We should not be species, you know, and so on. Okay, you are, you know what love means? It's total ontological imbalance. I meet you, you a particular stupid perishable being, you are for me more than everything else. Everything, love is an ontological catastrophe. That's why it's nice to be in love, but also <laughs> catastrophic. So isn't it, that's why I never trusted this flat admiration. Oh, I love you all. No, fuck you, I don't love you all. I love you maybe here and there, and that's the only true love. And the art, that's why, ah, a provocation to you, then I will finish. You know, the most intelligent critique of Levinas that I've heard, and I must admit, I'm not talking here about Levinas, but more about his popular perception, is that the reason he is so popular is that he secretly Christianizes Judaism. In what sense? That all this notion of, you know, uh, human face, the defenseless, vulnerable face of the other, addressing you as the ultimate ethical starting point, whatever. I have a Jewish friend in Israel who says, no, that we Jews know something more that Levinas ignores. That the zero ethical gesture is not, I see your face, ooh, I feel oh, an ethical injunction coming from it, that, that the authentic Jewish gesture is, okay, I'm fascinated by you, your face. But then, here comes this Jewish collective spirit. The first ethical thing to do is to look around and ask, but what do I not see when I see your face? You know, to make this step back towards others who remain in shadow, 
so that your stupid face, not yours, although maybe, I don't exclude <laughs> it, is open there. I, so you see this, you see how tricky I am and sophisticated. <laughs> this would be, maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me. So you noticed it, I read, I emphasized, I'm not talking here about Levinas in himself. I'm talking about the popular perception of Levinas. And I think this is a very nice gesture about this popular image of Levinas, that again, you are fascinated by someone. The zero level ethical gesture is look around what you ignore, what you don't see in order to see that. Here refugees enter and all that. I mean, okay, I did it, I covered almost uh, one third of what I wanted to say, but the same holds for you, I will keep my word. Also this, tomorrow afternoon, after the last talk, everything that I was not able to sell here but prepared, whom should I send you, to you or to my slave? Sorry, I mean this in a democratic way, you know. But do, to the slave. What DA? Slave, 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 S-L-A-V-E. My idea is I'm generally against slavery, but don't you think that in academia, we should make a small exception, and we can be polite and call them research assistants, whatever. We need slaves. We just, I told you, I will treat you nicely. I will beat you in such a way that there will be no traces and so on. I will be a very good master, you know. Okay, sorry, I finished. Thank you very much.